You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Over the course of this year, we are going to go through the gospel according to Matthew. I don't know if you know this, but we have three years where we go over Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John is interspersed among all those three years of the Christian year, the church lectionary. Today, we begin our multi-week-long look at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, probably the most popular sermon of all time. This sermon takes up three chapters in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. So this being our very first look at the sermon, I thought for this sermon I would do something a little different. I thought I'd give you, in the first part, ways to look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and then the second part, something that'll be edifying or it won't be. You decide. So the first part, we're going to take a look at how the Sermon on the Mount has been interpreted over the millennia, 2,000 years, many different ways of seeing this sermon, and I've got to say A lot of these ways of looking at the sermon are awesome. I don't think one way is the right way. I think some ways might be more right than others, but you'll see what I'm talking about now. So, from what I gather, there are six approaches to the Sermon on the Mount. And the first is probably the most popular. A lot of folks call it the absolutist approach. Maybe you've read Leo Tolstoy, one of the best novelists of all time. Most lists of best global novels have two of his in their top ten. Leo Tolstoy also took the Bible very seriously. In fact, he took it so seriously that he said, we have to take the Sermon on the Mount as literally as possible. And many others do this as well. Maybe you're familiar with Stanley Harawas and Richard Hayes. These are just a few powerhouse Christian names who say we must approach the Sermon on the Mount in an absolutist way. What do they mean? Well, if you know these three names, you know that all three of them are absolute pacifists. If you are struck on the cheek, you will not strike back. You will give the other. That's one of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Leo Tolstoy took it very seriously, much like those other two, and he said that the Sermon on the Mount calls for abolishing law courts, police, and armies. So all you lawyers out there, you are jobless from this day forward. If you're a policeman, well, Leo Tolstoy, I guess, was in favor of abolishing the police. And if you or anyone you know has served in an army, you are in a sense, disobeying the Sermon on the the Mount by serving in armies. This is the absolutist approach. I don't swallow this approach wholesale, but I do admire those, like St. Francis of Assisi, who takes seriously the call to go and give away everything that you own. This is the absolutist approach. And I would say, while we really should try to take the Sermon on the Mount very seriously, and 
if we can, literally. But Jesus also says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And what that might mean is that the laws we have in the Old Testament about armies, about just wars, that maybe we need to keep in mind that what Jesus is saying here is not an absolute for all of us. So that's the absolutist approach. The second approach is the monastic approach. And we Protestants, I don't think we take the monastic approach seriously enough. Obviously, this is very popular in medieval Catholicism, and adherents of this approach zero in on commands like, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Give everything and follow me. And so what adherents to this approach say is that Jesus must be talking about two types of Christians, two ways of being a Christian, two groups that are called to very different tasks. Unless we think this is just a creation of medieval Catholicism in, the, in first century Judaism. You have the full-time religious and what you might call the part-time religious or the secular. And in the Gospels, the 12 are told to do things that not everyone else is told to do. Only have one cloak, do not have two. So I, I do think that while we don't necessarily need monasteries, but we need to take this idea seriously, that different Christians might be called to take on some of these commands differently. The third approach is the Lutheran approach. You're probably all very familiar with this approach because this approach is popular at the Advent and has been for decades. But the Lutheran approach is saying that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is giving an impossible command. I mean, think about it. It climaxes with be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the Lutheran approach is try your best and when you fall, fear not, you're left with grace. Now, I love Paul Zoll, and I love Martin Luther, and I really love this approach. And I think the gospel ends on this approach. But the Sermon on the Mount doesn't necessarily go there. I still think it's valid, but you'll notice at the end of chapter 7, Jesus doesn't end with, well, you might screw it all up, grace. I think that's part of the larger canonical witness, but... Again, one approach. A fourth approach is the two kingdoms approach. And unfortunately, this approach has really fallen in hard times. And for good reason, because we are still heirs of the atrocities that happened in the 20th century. We saw firsthand, and we hear still, there are still people alive who are in the Holocaust today, these accounts of governments committing genocide, doing these horrible things. So this approach where there is a private sphere and a public sphere, it's not very popular today. What's an example of the private sphere versus the public sphere approach when going to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's kind of the opposite of the absolutist approach, the one that says you can't join the army, can't be a lawyer, uh, can't be a policeman. This says that there are private and public spheres, that I can hold the office of a public executioner, I can serve in the army because I am doing these things holding an office. 
rather than as a private citizen. As a private citizen, I cannot kill, but in this office, if there is a just war, I can go and serve in the army. Uh, I think of an example firsthand. I, I knew these parents uh, whose child uh, died in a drunk driving accident, and these parents um, took their Bible very seriously. And though it was so hard, they sat down with a driver who killed their child and made it clear to him that they forgave him. Nevertheless, in the public sphere, they were happy to have him go behind bars. So there's a little illustration of the two kingdoms approach, a, a private sphere where they were called to forgive and absolve, but in the public sphere, he must be held accountable. And if you think this is, you know, double talk or a double standard, well, just think of when Jesus commands also in the gospel, according to, of, to Matthew, to give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. There does seem to be this two-tier approach at times. Fifthly, there's the Christological approach. We here at the Advent also love this one. Karl Barth said, and he's so right, the Sermon on the Mount is a self-portrait of Jesus. When we read these Beatitudes, as we will in a second, we see that Jesus has fulfilled every single one of them. And the Sermon on the Mount, which is not meant to be taken out of the Gospel of Matthew and read on its own, it's really meant to be read in the whole Gospel itself. The rest of the Gospel shows how Jesus embodies his teachings in the Sermon of the Mount. He embodies his own imperatives. Once again, this connects these three chapters to the rest of the book, and if we want to go further, to the rest of the Bible. In a commandment like, blessed are the meek, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a, don on a donkey. But at the same time, if we, we can't take meek too far, right? Because Jesus also goes into the temple with a temper, a righteous temper, but not the way we oftentimes interpret the word meek. Think of things like blessed are the merciful and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We see Jesus embody this in willingly handing his life over to suffering and death. And if you think this is just you know, a 20th century Karl Barth thing, uh, origin in the third century made clear that all of the Beatitudes Jesus justifies through his own example. They are all fulfilled in his own life. And finally, sixth and last is the apocalyptic approach. The Sermon on the Mount gives us an end time ethic. These are no normal ethics. I mean, go home and read them closely. Jesus sees from the end, and he's looking back from that end, and he wants to take us ourselves out of the present, out of our entanglements that so often blind us to what we should or need to be doing. I think this approach is very valid, but at the same time, not all of the Sermon on the Mount is end times, or eschatological, or apocalyptic. So in summary, 
I'm going to summarize all six. And then we're going to get to something that hopefully is edifying. So the absolutist approach, Jesus demands something extraordinary from the world. And while we may not all adopt this approach of saying we can't be lawyers, we can't be in the army, we can't, you name it, I think what's helpful in this approach, whether we adopt it or not, is to ask ourselves the question, am I not adopting it because I'm complacent, because I just want to pretend that it's not there? The second approach, the monastic approach, the Sermon on the Mount applies to different Christians differently. That rubs us the wrong way as Protestants, but it might just be, as John Calvin said it was, that when Jesus says to the man, do not bury your father, come and follow me, we take that as like, well, the Old Testament talks about honoring your father and mother. What, what do we do with this? It could be that just like we have saints throughout the history of the church who have said, I felt as I read the Sermon on the Mount that I was called to give everything away, that maybe that is for that person and for those people. It, doesn't mean you and I should give nothing away, uh, but maybe we don't swallow that and give everything away the way some people are called to. The third approach, the Lutheran approach, the, the one I you know, hang my hat on, grace upon grace. Here is something that you could never fulfill. Try to fulfill it, but when you don't, remember there's grace. The fourth approach, the two kingdoms, there are public and private spheres, render unto God what is God's, Caesar's what is Caesar's. But, much like we learned over the past 150 years, we have to be able to stand outside of bad government. We have to be able to have the law of God speak in to the fact where, where we must resist. The Christological approach the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to read over the next couple weeks, is a self-portrait of Jesus. We interpret the imperatives by reading the whole book and by reading the rest of the Bible. Finally, the end times approach. If we're going to live forever and the end is near, how do we live in the world? So I say all this, this is much more like a Christian ed class than a sermon because we're going to be going over this in the next couple weeks. And when you see all of these approaches, from, all from very devout and faithful Christians, I think that we begin to, to, to recognize that the Sermon on the Mount is much more a collection of images than a series of moral imperatives. And what do I mean by that? It's not that there aren't imperatives in the Sermon on the Mount, but I think that the Sermon on the Mount is much more like entering into a narrative world than in following a law code. Much more like getting into the story of the Lord of the Rings and having it have its way with you than having the Alabama driver's handbook and interpreting, you know, turn right on red at these times, turn left on red, which I've learned is the thing at Birmingham, only when it's a one way onto a one way. I don't think that the Sermon on the Mount is to be read that way. So, what the Sermon on the Mount has done in Christian history, and I think can do for you and me, is give us room for, it provides wisdom for everyday ethics, but it also gives us room for imagination. As we go through our lives, as we pray, as we get into circumstances where we're like, what should I do here? When these 
the sermon becomes a part of us. As we read it and it gets into us, we find that it's slowly changing us. It's slowly getting us to a place where we will ultimately be, like the eschatological approach says, where we will be perfect as he is perfect. And that, in fact, is good news because that means you're not going to go back to the vomit that you keep going back to all the time. It means that I, one day, will stop hurting those whom I love. It's good news. The Sermon on the Mount, despite how hard it is to follow, it's good news because we will follow it one day. We will love as we are loved. We'll show mercy as we have been shown mercy, and we grow into it over a lifetime. So, and very briefly, hopefully an edifying part. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Beth Moore, but she is very active on Twitter, and she posted something yesterday morning in light of the recent shooting, uh, or the recent um, uh, video that came out of the man being attacked by the police. And she, she writes this. Many years ago, when we were in our 20s, one of my dearest couple friends, still close, lost a preschooler to cancer, nearly killed all of us in our circle. The fuller details of the last moments are too sacred for social media, but I can't get a part of it out of my mind this AM. The pain of his tiny body seemed to dissolve and his expression turned to joy as he described Jesus in detail to his parents, much like if you heard the story from Catherine Jacob on her deathbed, what she said she saw. The boy says, see, right there. Then he spoke of a woman with him. His parents were baffled and tried to think, who on earth? A deceased relative? No, he said, like they were silly not to know. Jesus is mommy. Soon he was in the arms of Christ. We wept and wept, yes, racked with grief, but also wrecked over the tenderness of a savior who just perhaps thought a little guy might find extra comfort in a mommy tagging along. If you make this story an occasion for theological disputation, I'm coming to your house today and punching you in the nose. You're not worthy to read this story. These killings, this violence, my paternal heart can barely stand the thought of Tyree Nichols crying out for his mother. I think of others who've done the same. I think of those children in Uvalde and how they must have wanted their mothers. I'm astounded at the violence and meanness of this world. If I did not think God sees, cares, and deals with this madness, I'd not care to draw another breath. And here it is, reason it's on my mind, and go to seed on it if you must. But I dang well hope Jesus took his mom with him to fold Tyree up in his arms and carry him gently home. Think what you must, but as for me, I hope he said, till yours gets here, you can borrow mine. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my behalf. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.